to Faculty Voices. Today we'll be talking about the World Cup. And as your hostess, June Carolyn Ehrlich, I have to admit that I know nothing about sports. So for the first time, we have a double hitter here. I've invited Darren Graves. He's a lecturer at the Graduate School of Education. And Steve Ortega, he's an affiliate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. Together, they call themselves the sports profs. So I'm going to ask them to teach me. You know, we're showing the World Cup in our resource room for every game. And I ask, why should we even care about the World Cup? I guess that's a question you ask to sports profs, <laughs> people who claim to have some knowledge in sports and the study of sports and things like that. I'll let Darren start. Why watch the World Cup? You know, as somebody who's watched World Cups for a long time, why do we do it? Thinking about this from the angle of a person who may or may not be totally interested in the ins and outs of soccer or football, as you and I know it, but for a more casual fan, like it's one of the few events happens every four years that really you know, the entire world, the entirety of the world really comes around to sit together to commune around like a common event. And in this case, in the form of the World Cup, right? And it doesn't even necessitate for like your country to have a team playing in the World Cup. Is there, is there something about the universality of football? Right. There's so many stories and that people latch on to through their own identity politics, through like the different the sort of global flows that we have, especially these days with media, right? That you can connect with players across so many borders. And so it just becomes a time. And unlike the United States, like a lot of parts of the world, like when the World Cup happens, like the world things stop. Like, you know, everything stops and people you know, work slows down, people, you know, gather around this. And now with the ways that people can communicate through media, social media, it really becomes this massive, like global event that that just doesn't happen in, in for m many other things. And I don't even think it happens even as strongly around like something like the Olympics. Like I think the World Cup has way more of that, that kind of influence than something like the Olympics or any other event that I can even think of, really. But why? Well, I'll jump in. I think, you know, it's a chance to kind of build community. There are three games a day in the group stages. So it's a, it's a place where people can come together in different places and they can cheer on their team and they can root and they can root for certain players. And they, yeah, as, as Darren said, it's this exposure to this global event where you have players from Argentina and you have players from Brazil and Saudi Arabia and Australia and Japan. I mean, there's no other venue really outside of the Olympics where that type of experience takes place and that sort of an event happens and it's competition too. And I think people like competition, you know, they like, and my team's going to win or I'm going to adopt a team. I mean, for, for fans who, you know, don't really have a team, it's a good thing to do. You watch enough games and then you like one particular team. And then before you know it, you're, you're deeply involved in hoping they win the world cup. So it's something that televisions and, you know, different bars and cafes all over the world people gather to watch. 
but I would also add just real quickly that it's also tied up in sort of like global and identity politics too. So that when you said the, well, the why, was I think people do start to get invested in teams or players or people's, you know, within across borders, you know what I mean? Because it's also wrapped up in some of those, those political issues as well. So I guess, June, it- what we want to know from you is who you're going to end up rooting for. That's- <laughs> oh, that's a secret. <laughs> Columbia's not playing, so I haven't made up my mind yet. It's a gendered experience. Oh, interesting. That's a really interesting experience because obviously there are groups of people where, you know, you have mixed gender events, right? Where it's not just all men watching World Cup games. Obviously, you know, the people playing in the games largely identify as men. I think it depends on where you're watching. I think maybe in some places it's more gendered than it is in other places where in other parts of the world, the people who come together are a variety of different types of people. But it is an opportunity for male bonding. I'm not going <laughs> to. It's, gen- it's a gendered experience. No, no, look, it's a gendered experience. I respectfully disagree in terms of, like you said, just what is the context that we're, what are we, what are we gathering around in the first place? Like, what is it that we're gathering around? Right. So yes, that in that and football doing a much better job of trying to, you know, broaden its audience when it comes to gender, but yeah, and it is still a very, you know, male dominated sort of patriarchal kind of experience like it just is and so we have to own that a little bit and i think there's been a lot of movement honestly i don't want to like bash it i you know we've seen growth in terms of the audience we think growth in terms of women's soccer and football worldwide and many other things there's a lot of work to be done as well but yes it is a gendered experience come on it is steve you want to push back a bit no, I kind of agree. Look, it's it's competition, right? It's it's men who don't have to go to work but can find other ways to compete, right? In in things where there's a winner and a loser and there's a champion and somebody can ultimately declare a victory. I think it's sort of deeply in, embedded in this sort of male desire to win, right? I mean, it doesn't look there's a women's world cup, there there are women's games as well. So, um, I mean, there there are situations where women, you know, compete in the same way. I'm not saying that, but I, I I do think that if you look at gatherings, they tend to be men sort of coming together and bonding to 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 root for a particular team. Right. I was saying, like, if you just look at who are the main characters and who is the presumed audience, it is a gendered experience, like 100%. Okay, so it's a gendered experience, but we're a Latin American center here. So why is this important to Latin America? Love well, because you've got some great teams in the competition. <laughs> you have Brazil and Argentina, two of the eight teams who've ever won the World Cup. And Uruguay, I should say, you've got three teams who've won World Cup. Only eight teams historically have ever won the World Cup. You've got Costa Rica, who's this kind of rising you know, Latin American power. You've got Mexico, who is always very competitive. It's really an opportunity, I think, to watch some of the best soccer in the world from these Latin American teams. And I can't believe that Steve being the historian, like not now, now I'm going to take the historical angle here, but yes, well, historically, when you talk about, especially Brazil and Argentina, right? Like they broke up a hegemony, right? Of like European sort of domination, right? In in football, right? And so I remember I was talking before about like rooting across, you know, borders and things like that. I feel like South American teams, particularly Brazil, but not just Brazil, I think can become the people's teens, right? The people who feel 
disenfranchised in the world, right? People who might feel the after effects of colonialism can start to right, might root for, you know, teams like Brazil or Mexico, right? Because they can, they see a little bit of themselves, you know, as they're, as they're gazing from the African continent or from South Asia or somewhere else, right? Or, or maybe as folks who are living in Europe or North America, but, you know, have an identity that, that feels ostracized, right? And so I think the Latin, the Latin American teams, and I also feel like the African teams sort of fall in this category as well. Sometimes we'll, we'll save that for a different podcast, fall into like teams that like people, that the, that the world can kind of get behind, especially if they feel like they, they're being underestimated or they're trying to push back against hegemony. So how does race figure into this? Now now you're talking my language. I think race has so much to do with it. And I think, are we, I think, you know, I'm thinking about Brazil in particular, right? You know, for me as a black man in the United States, like it's super easy for me to glom onto Brazil when I'm looking at a whole bunch of bodies out there and folks who are experiencing similar things to black folks like me, right? And so race has everything to do with it. When we think, I, I don't know if I'm going too far ahead of myself, but when we're talking about Pele and, and, and Maradona, these were folks in both their contexts. They don't look necessarily phenotypically exactly the same, but they were both considered black, right? In their in their specific context, right? And so to, to talk about like breaking hegemony, right? You know, from a racial lens, like these, you know, these titans of football were like black men who were like, taking over this entire this worldwide thing that people were commuting around that was usually dominated by folks who did not look like them or much less come from the meager backgrounds that they came from i just want to add too i left out ecuador and i <laughs> uh, discussing the different teams and uh, of course ecuador you know it's a big deal for for ecuador to go to the world cup and ecuador is a team that's you know hasn't kind of risen to the level of success that brazil and argentina have but a very, very strong South American team. Yeah, you've talked about Brazil and Argentina, which are obviously very big countries, but you're also talking about these little countries. I mean, Ecuador, Costa Rica, Uruguay. How did that come about? Good football associations. I mean, Costa Rica in the 2014 World Cup went to the, the quarterfinals, you know, the last eight in the world. Uruguay won two of the first four World Cups. Now, the first World Cup was principally dominated by South American teams because the European teams couldn't get there. It was, it was played in 1930, and it was difficult to cross the Atlantic, and it was expensive and things like that. So that obviously played to the Uruguayans' advantage, but nonetheless, they won and then came back and won again in 1950. Their programs around the world, Costa Rica being one, Uruguay being another, Iceland is another country that has done incredibly well given its size. Holland is not a huge country. They're good kind of national programs that recruit people and train them and, and prepare them for professional soccer careers. I also think, for, just for folks who may not understand how like folks qualify for the World Cup, is that the, the world is sort of... In, in, in soccer terms, are sort of cut up into different regions, right? And those regions then have to sort of compete against each other to then get in to, to get certain spots. And so teams like Costa Rica and Mexico are in a region that includes United States, Canada, right? So sort of like, you know, North America, in quotes, right? And then, you know, Uruguay is going to be competing against teams like Argentina, Brazil, Chile, 
right? Um, South of Ecuador, Peru, you know, South American, Colombia, right? Some of this is about, you know, how, how strong you are compared to your other regional teams at any, at any given time, right? And so Costa Rica is only going to be competing against who they compete against. So it's a little easier in some ways for Costa Rica to get into the World Cup than it is for Uruguay to get in the World Cup because there's a little more competition in the South America, you know, stiffer competition in the South American region than there is playing, you know, Trinidad and Tobago, the United States, and other teams that aren't necessarily that good. Just to put it in context, how difficult it is to get in for some countries, Italy, who won the Euros last year, who's, you know, a football powerhouse, is not going to the World Cup this year, even though they've won the World Cup four times. So the European competition qualification is so competitive that they didn't make it. You mentioned Pelé and Maradona. And I'm wondering for those of our listeners who aren't soccer followers, if you could explain who they are and what they mean. And also, are there any stars or any people we should be keeping our eyes on from Latin America during these games? Pelé and Maradona are, are the two great kind of iconic well, Pelé, a Brazilian player, Maradona, an Argentinian player. They actually did not play at the same time as Pelé was retiring. Maradona was starting his career. What is notable about them is Pelé won three World Cups, Maradona won one, an iconic World Conic victory from Maradona in 1986 in Mexico, when a goal he scored was called the hand of God, where the ball kind of touches his hand, but it goes into the goal, nobody pays much attention, and they beat England, right, which had huge political significance. Both come from, you know, poor backgrounds, both are people who kind of there's this sense they kind of have the weight of a nation on their backs and they're players who become these incredible global icons. In 1967 in, in Nigeria, Pele travels to Nigeria and the war with the Afra, actually there's a, there's a ceasefire for three days just to, you know, just to have Pele there. So, I mean, it shows his kind of world significance. Maradona is a guy who ends up at playing his club soccer at Napoli, which is not one of the great powerful teams in Italy and and wins championships there. So sort of brings the Neapolitan club, you know, this huge, huge, you know, amount of attention and 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 success. And that is something that's looked on favorably. Maradona was also a very political person. He embraced people like Fidel Castro. He he was somebody who wasn't, you know, scared to mix it up in politics. Very much the working man's player. Steve inadvertently lost every friend of ours who lives in England when he said the, 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 the phrase, the hand touched, the ball touched his hand in the hand of God ago when he's talking about Maradona, because I, I think other folks might have seen it in, uh, more of like Maradona punching the ball into the goal, but nicely done there, Ortega. In terms of stars <laughs> to think about now, I mean, very big ones. I mean, so the first one that comes to mind is is Lionel Messi, who is is hands down like the number one sort of football star in the world. Definitely not at his peak at this point in his career, but is still just an absolute magician in terms of scoring and passing. And so he's he's got the most, he definitely has the most name and brand recognition in the world. And so he's just a big star, plays for Argentina and has the World Cup, 
success has been very elusive for Messi, and that's been a big part of his. He's been a mate. Has had a, so won so many different things in his career and his club career with Barcelona, and you know he's just in a but but elusive World Cup success, and so that's been a part of his narrative. And especially when juxtaposed with Maradona, like it, it, he's carrying this weight of like trying to even be able to stand on the same level with him, and so that's one big star from South America. Another one from Brazil would be Neymar, um, Neymar Jr., who plays for Paris Saint-Germain right now in France, but a big Brazilian star, former teammate of Messi at Barcelona, who's just also, again, I think probably right behind Messi in terms of name and brand recognition, very flamboyant, plays for Brazil. And so, you know, and Brazil and Argentina have a massive history and competition with each other. So those are like the two big teams. I'm sure I can name other players, but I think I think those are the th- those are the big ones you want to hold on to. I don't know if Ortega, you want to add any. any well, I, I, I do want to add that if Messi or Neymar wins a World Cup for their country, they will be eternally loved. It is something that will exist in perpetuity. It is such a big deal to be champions of the world to hold that trophy up in front of billions of people and to say we are champions i mean it's something that generations later people will remember and there is the pressure because as darren mentioned maradona did accomplish that in 1986 pele did it three times even though one of the times he was he he was injured i in i think in 1962 so for neymar or messi not to accomplish that, not to win a World Cup, becomes also a part of their legacy, becomes a, a part. It just, it really changes the narrative on your career. That's very interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned a Latin American playing for another team. Is that common? What is the Latin American influence beyond the teams in Latin America? For those of us who may not be as deep into the, the, the soccer knowledge, when they're not doing this, like once every four years, like na- you know, like national sort of or international tournament, many of these players play for you know basically club teams, right? The you know, like in the United States, the equivalent of like the Major League Baseball or National Football League. These teams are all over the world. Some of them are yes, they're in Latin in Latin America, in Brazil, in Argentina, in Colombia, right? And there's a lot of club teams that are there and big ones, you know, especially in Argentina, I'm thinking like River Plate and Boca Juniors or um, who am I in Brazil, Steve, there's, I'm, I'm blanking right now, Flamenco. Santos, um, right? I mean, who Pele plays for, for most of his career. Most of the, the biggest and most, you know, prominent club teams, you know, again, speaking to European hegemony are in Europe, right? They're in England, they're in France, they're in Spain, they're in Italy, Germany. And so, so many of those players play over there, you know, so we want to go back to Messi, which is another part of Messi's legacy, right? Messi, for the most part, spent most of his life not in Argentina. Like he spent most of his life in Spain because he was training with Barcelona, which is like, you know, massive club team. And so a team like, you know, Barcelona, like then, then now is all has many, many players from Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, like all over Latin, you know, Latin America in England and all over the place. I mean, there's so there's just too many to name in terms of the amount of players 
that are doing that. And, and even, and, and I think another dimension to this too, I'll let Ortega get in is, you know, some, some, some of the countries have so much talent, right? I'm done the South American countries have so much talent that the prospects of getting on their national teams are so slim that players are then gaining dual nationality to other European countries, or other countries, and then playing for those countries as a way to just be able to get onto the international scene. Off the top of my head, someone like, you know, Jorginho, who's Brazilian, who plays in Italy. Tiago Alcantara is another Brazilian. There's many Brazilians. Tiago Alcantara plays for Spain. There's many, many Brazilians who have taken up, you know, nationalities in, in other, mainly European countries. So will we see this during the World Cup? Yes, there are people who play, you know, from different nationalities, but it more relates to the club team experience. I mean, there definitely are players who, like Jorginho, who who Darren just mentioned, is an Italian national player, originally comes from Brazil. Tiago Alacantra, who actually did not make the Spanish national team as a Brazilian. Maybe what's more interesting, though, is the fact that Messi had spent so much time in Spain that it was considered a problem for a lot of Argentinians. I mean, it was, is he one of us or is he one of them? He actually had obtained a Spanish passport. He could have originally played for the Spanish national team, but he he chose to. Again, the big story was Messi. He wants to win the affections of the Argentine people. And by winning a World Cup with Argentina, that will make that happen. I did do a little research to look at some players who are, uh, who are Latin American who might be in the World Cup who are playing for other teams. And, so, and this is the best that I could do. So we have Jesus Ferreira, who's playing for the U.S., but was actually born in Colombia. We have Christian Roldan, who is playing for the U.S., but is eligible, actually, for either Guatemala or El Salvador because of his parents. And his brother, Alex, actually does play for El Salvador. And we have Jonathan Osorio, who plays for Canada. His parents were born in Colombia. And then we have two folks from Switzerland, Roberto Rodriguez, his father is from Spain and his mother is from Chile. And then we have Ruben Vargas, who's from, who also plays for Switzerland, whose father is from the Dominican Republic. Interesting. So let's switch to another subject, politics. The World Cup's being held in Qatar, and there have been so many allegations of money, of corruption, of taking place in a country with their human rights abuses. Is the World Cup worth it? What's, what's at stake here? What are the issues? This is a very complicated question for football fans because... As we know, the World Cup was awarded to Qatar in 2010, the same time that the 2018 World Cup was awarded to Russia. Subsequently, all sorts of claims and a case that was put together by the U.S. Justice Department, massive corruption allowed the Qataris to to get this World Cup. And I think the Qataris would probably argue there's a lot of corruption in football in general. FIFA is not an organization that does, you know, that is unfamiliar with corruption. It's something certainly the two of us are very conscious of, right? And it may, you know, if somebody said, do you want to go to Qatar and watch the World Cup? I think I would say no, for the reasons, you know, that, that have, been, have been discussed. I just want to be more clear for the audience about the layers of politics to this, right? So one is like you're saying, like, the process of like getting a World Cup is like, I don't know, it, Inherit, I don't know, someone might argue inherently corrupt. Like it's really just about like who can gather the most, splash the most cash, 
and make the best offer and make it happen, right? And so that's just a process that's like rife with corruption in general. And some, and it was definitely documented in in this case in Qatar and some, and you know, and some feel, and I think the Qataris feel like, well, why are you like, why all this scrutiny on us as opposed to everyone else? You know, so I could understand that. So that's one layer to it. Second layer is, the working conditions of folks who were employed to to like make all these stadiums and accommodations was also well documented that you know many thousands of folks uh workers died not very like inhumane working conditions to make this grand spectacle happen and so that's another layer to the political mess that this is and it's been interesting to see the ways that different football associations have across the world have been either in solidarity with fellow workers, you know, who are who are working under, you know, horrible conditions or football associations who have been silent, who have just been showing up on a plane in Qatar, like in the last three days, right? That's another layer to this. And then I think the third layer with Qatar in particular is that, you know, they have their own particular laws and cultural values around LGBTQ rights in particular, and many advocates of LGBTIQ see it as not a very safe place. And so there's been a lot of concern about what does it mean to go to this place where I can't, you know, live freely in that regard. As a soccer team, the captains often wear like an armband, like around like their sort of bicep to to sort of denote them as the captain. And there's been a lot of movement to try and wear these rainbow captain's armbands as a way to you know at least you know stand in solidarity some people are going to do it some people aren't right some people say hey no this is Qatar I'm going to respect their customs I'm not going to blow it up in their face other people are saying hey this is a big world stage you know that sort of a thing so those are the different layers to like you decide whether you should be watching participating enjoying the festivities of of the world cup I like Steve will end up watching it I love the the competition. I love the sport. I, I I definitely watch it. You know, I understand that by watching it, I'm participating in this. Like I am supporting. Like that that we have to. You have to be clear about that, right? Because you know, watching it is is part of it. I think we all make that bargain in so many ways when it comes to so much of the things that we consume in this life, and we think we you know we have to. You know, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have a problem with people boycotting it. I wouldn't have a problem with that. I, I could. I could totally understand that. You know, obviously, all of the thirty-two teams who qualified to go to the World Cup are going, right? But there are different ways, as as Darren mentioned. You know, some will will wear a rainbow band. Some will wear different types of jerseys to protest what you know, the the, the terrible things that have been done to the workers there. Some people have made the argument: you go there. You can kind of bring greater exposure to that. Others said, say that's not true, right? You need to boycott. That's the only way that you can really, you know, put pressure on the Qataris. But again, it's 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 a really complicated issue. I mean, the 2018 World Cup was held in Russia, right? Too, where similar problems, or maybe not exactly the same problems, but you know, other problems exist. You know, others have mentioned that, you know, when why should World Cups always be held in kind of Western nations, right? In the United States or Europe or something like that. That's one of the things the countries have have put forward. It it it's a type of racism that's being directed against them. Why shouldn't a Middle Eastern country be able to host? I, I certainly understand why people would boycott this World Cup. And I've talked to a lot of people, soccer lovers, who are considering that. We'll see what how that 
plays out. The sport draws you in, you know, the competition draws you in, you know, it's the winter, it's cold here. It's cold in a lot of parts of the world. You know, I think we look for reasons to celebrate and, you know, hopefully in this world cup, things will happen where enough attention will be brought to the, the, the political issues that exist in Qatar and, and change will take place. Real quick. It really reminds me of 1968 Olympics where a lot of black athletes, American athletes were deciding, do I go to the Olympics? Do I boycott? Many decided to boycott. Others decided to know, go and then use that opportunity, right, as a platform. And that created the, the iconic, you know, moment uh, uh, with John Carlos and the Black track players who were raising their fists at, at the podium. And so, yeah, you could, we, could see a, we could see a mix of both. I could, see, I could see similar things happening. Some people trying to, like, opt out of this thing altogether. Some people trying to use the platform. So it would really be interesting to see what happens. It will create a volatile political mix, put it that way. It'll be interesting. Let's talk about another kind of mix. Get down to the nitty gritty to close up. Who's in the field? Who are the favorites? Who are your favorites? What's going on with Latin America? Well, you know, for all intentions and purposes, I guess Argentina is considered to be the favorite. If you look at, you know, some people who are forecasting the World Cup. Argentina now is, I think, rated the top team in the world. Obviously, this is Messi's last chance to win a World Cup. So I'm not sure that's the case. I kind of think Brazil has a better chance of winning the World Cup than Argentina. I think this is an incredibly strong Brazilian team. Brazil has not won the World Cup since 2002. That's actually a long stretch. The Brazilians, you know, are a pretty consistent performer. They've won five World Cups more than anybody else. And I think they come to this World Cup with a stronger team than they have in years. Just to be clear for like the rest for folks, like there's other big teams out there, like France is a big power out there. Germany's another one. England's another big one. There's so these usually these European sort of hegemons that are usually out there that are lurking, usually trying to win this thing. But what usually so but here's the thing. What usually happens is that when the the when these World Cups move to more warm weather nations right the european teams kind of fizzle out with the heat right they they can't really keep up and that usually favors the south american powers and so that's why i think brazil or argentina is not a bad pick right you know i i think i'm personally pulling for in this case for a few different reasons brazil and that's be, and that's for just for a few reasons. This one, like I, I'm a big fan of foot. We were talking about the club teams before, right? So I'm a big fan of you know football club Arsenal, which is in London, and they have, they have a few Brazilian stars on the team: Gabriel Jesus and Gabriel Martinelli. And so I, I'm kind of rooting for my my players. I just like the Brazil team in general because I just they, they they are they just look like they're going to play a, and they usually do play a really exciting brand of soccer that's just you know easy on the eye and then the last reason I'm rooting for Brazil is that here in Boston right so you're talking about in the celebrations right so here in Boston we have a very robust Brazilian community so if when if and when Brazil wins this thing Boston is going to the Boston area as far as Framingham we're going to have like it's going to be a big party in this part of the world and so I will root for that as well so I have to say as as a long time FC Barcelona supporter it's very hard for me to root against Messi he's gone and played at another team 
no fault of his own, though. I mean, that had more to do with club politics and finances. I just think for a player who's been so great, a player who's been so successful at so many different levels, that this will this will be his crowning achievement. I mean, this will literally, people will never forget it. And he will be able to kind of vault himself up to one of the great greats of all time. If he fails again, people will, you know, that will remain a criticism. So I think for Messi, I don't think Argentina's, I think Brazil has a stronger team, but I think for Messi to win, it would just be incredible. It would cement his place in all-time football history. Agreed. I was going to ask if um, Steve had to put money down, would he do it on Argentina? No. No, Brazil. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. I think Brazil's got a better team. Sorry, Argentina. I'm can sorry I, to throw you, you under the bus, but I think Brazil's got a better team. Can I give you a quick USA Latin America angle? How about that? So there's there's also the the United States of America is also I don't know a team in the World Cup that's competing by the way, right? Who's in this? Which is not a guarantee, by the way, because we we missed what the last two I think I can't remember, but to me. One of my laments about the USA team, and I think this is part of some of the ways that the USA team is recruiting or not recruiting their players, is that to me, the USA team really should be a little less indistinguishable from the, from the Mexico team. And, that, and what I mean by that is that there's a vibrant community of like real football, like football community, like in especially around in in the south and the southwest of mexican american folks who aren't tied into or or these the the us team isn't plugged into those communities right and they're more tied into communities that are have resources and you know the big fields right and the the travel teams right that whole thing and so my i know that there's a, a big part of the community and by the way there's a few I, I don't i can't remember exactly who but there's a few players from the united states who have decided to play for mexico instead by the way because they could right through dual citizenship but we need i think we, we could be doing a way better job of tapping into our latin american communities in the u.s who like live breathe you know soccer and football and then i think we'd be a better national team and I think it would almost be like another Latin American team to root for in a weird way, if that makes sense. So, you know, June, that uh, somebody has made the comment that the most followed and loved sports club in the United States is the Mexican national team. You go to games, particularly, you know, in the, in the Southwest, on the West Coast, and there are more people supporting the Mexican national team than supporting the U.S. team. So the Mexican national team, there will be a lot of people in the U.S., rooting for the Mexican national team. Any of those games, any of any of the, the Latin American teams that come to play in the United States and they play in like California, Texas, any, I don't care, Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, any of those teams, Colombia, they, they will take over that stadium, 100%, 100%. I want to say something to the fans in the, in the, who are listening, who will end up listening. I, I, you know, I think that this is something where you kind of attach yourself to a team and maybe that team wins, maybe they don't, but they're, then you can just attach yourself to another team. I, I, th I think, you know, uh, you can find love in many places. And I think this is a wonderful tournament. 
there won't be another one for four years. They're talking about changing it to two years, but there's a beauty in every four years. So I think that, you know, this is something really to enjoy. I think we can all agree the people who are running it are certainly not the best people in the world. There are lots of questions surrounding their motives, their, you know, the types of things that we talked about in regard to Qatar. But the people who actually play the games, there's an incredible amount of beauty in it. And, and those are the people we're looking to support. So there may be a game you watch and you may watch a player you've never seen before. And now this player becomes one of your favorite players. And then you turn to the club team and then you, you buy a shirt. And then before you know it, you're hooked. It's an opportunity to come together with people. It's an opportunity to kind of learn new things. It's an opportunity to see just, you know, really enjoy an incredible sport. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'll just end on saying this, like, Steve knows, like, you can't, you all can't see this, but I'm wearing one of my, like, you know, my, my, my soccer jerseys. And I often walk around in the world when I don't have to, like, you know, be in my work uniform, right? In, in my soccer jerseys, a variety of kind. And what the best part about it, and Steve knows this, I tell him this all the time, you know, I walk through airports, I walk through the store, you know, walk on the street and someone will see the jersey. People who don't, any people, all walks of life will just see the jersey and strike up a conversation or say, oh my gosh, yes. Or, oh, you like that too? Oh no, right, you know? And so to me, and like, in, in just playing the game it's such a it, it, yes to me like what, what I know that I love about the sport and Steve and I love about the sport is that it's a way that it brings the world to you in so many ways right and it helps connect you with so many different people you know not not in a hokey way we you know it helps you see we know you know look there's so much there's so it's so fraught and so political but it's but it's beautiful it really is so I, I couldn't agree more yeah, I would agree with Darren. If you if you if you find a team you're supporting, get a shirt, walk around, you'll have a bunch of new friends. <laughs> and if that's right, if your team doesn't win in the end, that's probably more important. That's a wonderful way to conclude. Thank you for being with us on Faculty Voices. You've been listening to Steve Ortega, who is an affiliate at Harvard's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, and to Darren Graves, who is a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Together, they call themselves the Sports Props. Thank you for being here.